Everybody say game changer. I'm really believing by the time we get to the end of this series, this teaching thing, we don't really call them series, they're more themes, because sometimes we don't know when we're going to end them, we just kind of roll with them, all right? By the time we get to the end of this, I'm believing that not only are we going to see major life change in our lives, but I believe we're going to find out that Jesus wants us to be game changers. That's the goal. But everybody look at me. How many of you know that you can't change anybody else until yourself have been changed? So let's start right here, right now. Just point at yourself and say, Lord Jesus, let revival begin right here. I definitely want world peace. Come on, keep it up. I want world peace, but I'll take some me peace right now, okay? Start right here. I want to start off today by reading an article from the Smithsonian Archives. In 1905, college football was all the rage, attracting tens of thousands of fans to the game at a time when Major League Baseball teams only attracted about 3,000. Pro football was still about 10 years away. So college football Tens of thousands of people were showing up. But it was also an increasingly violent passion. Everybody say violence. There you go. This guy right here was one of those violent ones, I think. Nationwide, in 1905, there were 159 people seriously injured. Not like an ankle or a knee. Seriously injured. And not just injury. That year alone, there were eight fatalities during football games. So it was, you hear about the violence of football now, there was, you have never felt anything, never even seen anything. It was so violent. So in December of 1905, 62 schools sent representatives. They met in New York to change the rules and make the game safer. They made a number of changes, including this. They banned something called the flying wedge That sounds terrible, doesn't it? It was a mass formation that would cause just terrible injuries. So they banned that. Then they created a neutral zone between the offense and the defense. They required teams to go 10 yards before they could get a first down. But the biggest change they made was they made the forward pass legal. Everybody say hallelujah. So that what came out of that. The forward pass is now legal. You can use it. However, it didn't really work. It seemed like a radical move, but it didn't quite do anything because here's some rules that were tacked on to the forward pass. How many don't know anything about football? Just raise your hand. Okay, y'all just doze off for a minute, okay? (laughs) In America? The forward pass, if you threw a forward pass and it was incomplete, it was a 15-yard penalty. All right? So that was one. If you threw a forward pass and nobody touched it, the other team got the ball. So because of that rule, coaches wouldn't try it. And also the Smithsonian says this, that most of the coaches said that throwing the ball was a sissified way to play football. (laughs) So they wouldn't adopt this strategy. They just wouldn't do it. It took two years from 1905. Remember, 1905 is when they made it official. You can now throw a forward pass. It was not until 1907, two years later, 
after the rule change that a team would see the potential of the forward pass. In 1907, Coach Glenn Pop Warner was coach at the Pennsylvania's Carlisle Indian Industrial School, a boarding school for Native Americans. And this cat was not afraid to try something new. I love this. Coach Pop had already built this team into a football powerhouse, largely through trick plays and deception. Over the years, he drew up end-arounds, reverses, flea flickers, and even one play that required deceptive jerseys. Coach Warner had elastic bands sewn into his players' jerseys so that after receiving the kickoff, all the team would run together and huddle, and then they would take off different places, and the other team wouldn't know who had the ball because it was stuck underneath their jersey. So this guy was not afraid to try stuff new, even if it borderline cheating. But the tricks were necessary because the Native Americans would compete against players that were 30 and 40 pounds heavier than them. And so Coach Warner said, we got to do some stuff to give these guys an advantage. So for the 1907 season, Coach Warner created a new offense dubbed the Carlisle Formation an early evolution of the single wing. A player could run, pass, or kick without the defense knowing their intent from the formation. The forward pass was just the kind of trick that other coaches avoided, but Coach Warner loved, and one that he found his players soon loved as well. He said this, once they started practicing, I pretty much couldn't stop them. My, how them boys did take to it, Warner remembered. Light on their feet as professional dancers and everyone amazingly skillful with his hands. They pirouetted in and out. That's not a word you hear a lot in football, is it? They pirouetted in and out until the receiver is well down the field, and then they shot the ball like a bullet. This is Coach Warner's own words. So using this formation and the forward pass, Carlisle opened up the 1907 season. And remember, they were outweighed, outmanned. Their first triumph over Lebanon Valley was 40 to 0. Then they ran off five more victories with a total score of 148 to 11. Then they went to the University of Pennsylvania and met the undefeated and the unscored upon Pennsylvania. They had not been scored upon in front of 22,000 fans in Philadelphia on the second play of the game. Carlisle's Peter Hauser, who lined up at the fullback, launched a long pass that William Gardner caught on a dead run, setting up the game's first touchdown. Now stop. We see that all the time. Today, when you go home, you're going to see people throwing it. The crowds had never seen that before. It was just massive men running around and may score a, a few touchdowns a game. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy throws in front of 22,000 people, throws this long pass, setting up the game's first touchdown. The Indians completed eight of 16 passes, including one thrown by a player relatively new to the varsity squad named Jim Thorpe. New York Herald reported the forward pass was child's play. The Indians tried it on first down, second down, on third down, and any down they could find, and it was seldom that they did not make something with it. Carlisle romped Pennsylvania 26-6. to outgaining them 402 yards to 76 yards. Two weeks later, the Indians again used the pass to defeat the team they had never beaten before, Harvard, by 23 to 15. 
And on that day, the game changed forever. Can you imagine going home today and watching football while nobody ever threw the ball? How many would just lose your mind? Just, just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Change the game. When you go back and you begin to look at how this happened, you can say, okay, what changed the game? Was it the forward pass? Was it the committee that changed the rule? Was it that 18 people died that year? Was it the coach that gave it a try? Or was it the team that put it into action? And the answer is all of them. Every single one of those components were needed to be a game changer. 18 people, unfortunately, had to die. And almost 200 had to be seriously injured before the people would say, we've got to do something different. Sometimes a game changer is not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes a game changer is not something that you looked at and said, I want that to happen in my life. But it happens, and because of that, you will begin to make changes in your life. A game changer. It can be a person. It can be an event. It can also be, I found out that you can tell what it is by the way that it's said. It can be good. It can be, that's a game changer right there. How many know I'm talking about that one right there? When you get that pick on the, on the, you know, the, your, your lottery pick or whatever, that's a, yeah, that's a game changer right there. It can be bad. Oh, that's a game changer. It can be disappointing. It can be, well, man, that's a game changer. Or it can be, oh, okay, I see. That's a game changer. That's how we're going to do it? Okay. That changes everything right now, uh-huh. That's a game changer. How many have said that this week right there? Game changers do one thing. How many can tell me what they do? Y'all so smart. Look at your neighbor that did not say anything and say, it's right there. Game changers do one thing. What do they do? (laughs) They don't play the game well. They change the game. It's not just about playing it well. It's not just about doing something good. It's about changing the game. Because of pitcher Ed Walsh, the spitball is illegal in Major League Baseball. Because of Bob Gibson, the pitching mound is 10 inches high instead of 15 inches high. Because of George Mikan, there is no goaltending in basketball, and the lane is 12 feet wide. Game changers change the game. Because of Wilt Chamberlain, you can't dunk the ball on your free throws. Man. Because of chocolate thunder, Dr. Duncanstein, Daryl Dawkins, we now have breakaway rims in NBA. Because of Tiger Woods' iconic Augusta National Golf Course had to be tiger-proofed because it was too easy. Game changers. Wayne Gretzky changed the speed of the game. Billie Jean King changed the gender of the game. Jackie Robinson changed the color of the game. Serena Williams changed the power of the game. Muhammad Ali changed the volume of the game. And Michael Jordan changed everything about the game. Game changers don't just play the game differently. They change the game entirely. Now, if you haven't been taking notes because I've been reading articles from the Smithsonian, that would have been a good one to write down. Game changers don't just play the game differently. They change the game entirely. The game is never the same after they show up. Luke chapter 4 and verse number 14. Turn in your Bibles, if you will. Or if not, it'll be right here on the screens. 
Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was preaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. I want you to stop right there. Do you all see that? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, what did he do on the Sabbath? Went to church, as was his custom. If there's anybody that could have said, yeah, I think I'm going to skip out today. I don't know that I need to go. No, he went. That's a little pastor plug right there. And I have a feeling he showed up on time too, but we won't even get into that one. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news or proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And just like an old movie, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And when he had their attention, he said this, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, you talk about dramatic. Now, if you, if you go back into Luke chapter 3 and the beginning of Luke chapter 4, here's what you find. Jesus has just been baptized by John. The Holy Spirit, the heavens, the Bible says the heavens are ripped open and a voice from heaven says, this is my son. I'm well pleased with him. We're talking about things that, had not happened before. And the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him. And then, right after his baptism, the Bible says, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Everybody say, the same Spirit that descended on him now led him. I may want to be Spirit-led. All right, but wait a minute. He said, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. I may want to be Spirit-led. (laughs) <laughs> you ever felt God tugging on you? Hey, I want to take you someplace cool, right? You ever felt that? Oh, yeah, let's go, let's go. And then you start following him, and all of a sudden, things start getting brown and dry and dusty. And that's when you start saying, I don't know if Jesus was in this thing or not. The wilderness. He leads him to the wilderness. He's there. How many can tell me how long he was there? For 40 days, he fasted. At the end of his fasting, 40 days, Satan shows up to tempt him. He tempted him. So now this is the backstory of all of that. Then the Bible says, then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. We're going to be doing some teaching pretty soon on the Holy Spirit. But there is a succession of the Holy Spirit. Watch even with Jesus. The Holy Spirit descended on him. The Holy Spirit led him. And then the Holy Spirit empowered him. I believe the reason he returns in the power is because he heard what his daddy said, but it was only a title until it was tested. It was only, okay, you're my son, but now that he walks through the testing, now he has the power of that calling. And he shows up and he says, I'm here now, walks into the sanctuary, 
opens up that scroll and begins to read it. Everybody's looking at him, and he right when that drama is right at the highest point, he sits down, and he goes, oh, by the way, today, the scripture I just read you, that you have read all your life and heard quoted all your life, today, it is fulfilled in your hearing. You look up that word in the, that whole phrase in the original Greek translation, here's what it says. Things about to change around here. If you look it up even deeper, it says, y'all ain't never met anybody like me. That's pretty much what Jesus was saying. Things are about to change. Now, here's what you got to think back. The Jewish culture moves very slow. It moves slow. When you start looking back, you'll see that it was approximately 2,000 years from Adam to Moses and almost 2,000 years from Moses to Jesus. 2,000 years where things were done a certain way, and then there was a shift, and then it was done a certain way, and then after Jesus, there's a shift, and it was done a certain way. But I say, time moves slow. And so Jesus walks into 4,000 years of things being done a certain way. This is how we do it. Don't mess up the status quo. And we'll be talking during this teaching theme over the next several weeks that there's one time Jesus walks into the temple and he pulls out a whip and he starts turning things over. Because sometimes God has to get into our sacred stuff and just ruin it. Has to mess it up. Put a little graffiti on it. Throw some things out. Trash some stuff that we thought we knew how to do. And so anytime that you've done things a certain way, there's a mindset. I want you to write this down. There's a mindset. Now, there's seven dispensations. We're not going to go through those. There's seven dispensations that theologians talk about throughout the Bible. I want to hit just these two right now, really quick, real fast, and I'm going to tell you in my vernacular how I believe the mindset was. From Adam to Moses, there was a certain mindset. Now, remember, Adam was born into innocence, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, everything's perfect and fine and glorious, and then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve sin. And because of that, they enter into the fall And here's what God says to Adam and Eve. Anything you get, you're going to get because you worked for it. Now look at me. In the garden, all you had to do was make sure you you and I were in relationship with each other. But now, you're going to have to work for anything you get. That's a whole other good sermon right there in itself. (laughs) As 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 long as Adam and Eve were in relationship with God, they didn't have to worry about what they ate where they lived, where they slept, what they wore, who they married, nothing. It was all taken care of as long as they were in relationship with God. And here's what you find. God always creates things the way he wants them. So if you want to know what the kingdom is going to look like, just turn it on its edge. And there's going to be a day that all we're going to be concerned with is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's going to be the light. There will be no need for the sun. We're not going to have to worry about food. We're not going to have to worry about who we marry because it's all relationship with Jesus. I'm not a good preacher, but that was good preaching right there. From there to there, that was a really good word. 
I will brag on myself. That's what you learn, McAnally's. As a church planner, you have to brag on yourself a lot. Just get an amen track. Every once in a while, just hit it, and just they'll amen you with a little B3 organ, and you'll make it through it, I promise you. <laughs> so here, everything's taken care of, right? Y'all with me? Everything's taken care of. Everything's fine. All is great. And then all of a sudden now, if Adam wants something, what does he got to do? Work for it. You're going to get fruit by the sweat of your brow, is what he said. The ground is cursed. You're going to have to work for it. So I want you to write this down. From Adam to Moses, the mindset was, I've got a fight to live. Fight for it. It's survival. I've got to do everything I can just to live. Then Moses shows up. He goes up to the mountain. God gives him the great commandments, the law. He brings the law down, and at that moment, things begin to change because 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, law brought death with it. The law brought death because now, not only were you having to work for it, if you didn't work hard enough, you were going to die. If you didn't do the right thing the right way by the law, every dot and every line, you were going to die. And so from from Adam to Moses, you had to fight to live. From Moses to Jesus, you had to fight not to die. And Jesus shows up with that mindset. For 4,000 years... Humanity has been, I've got to fight, I've got to scrape, I've got to claw, I've got to do everything I can to stay alive. Does that remind you of anybody right now? Everything I can to get as much as I can so I can live. And then you step into Moses, I've got to fight, I've got to claw, I've got to protect myself so I don't die. Does that remind you of anybody? And then Jesus shows up on the scene with a completely different mindset. And in our text, his first declarations, everybody look at me. This is the first words that Jesus says in his ministry. His ministry had not begun until that time. He is now making the proclamation. It's like if I stood up here my first time to preach and I would say to y'all, here's what I'm going to do in my ministry. This is what Jesus is saying. He's been baptized. He's gone through the temptation. He's returned in the power of the Spirit. He shows up. Everybody's thinking, I got to fight to live. I got to fight not to die. And Jesus' first proclamation is good news, freedom, healing, favor. I'm going to proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind. I'm going to set the oppressed free. I'm going to proclaim the year of God's favor. What he was saying is, I know there's a way that y'all have done things, but this is a game changer. Now that I'm on the scene, everything is about to change. Up until that point, it was how do we survive? How do we keep from dying? How do I hang on to life? And Jesus shows up and says, life? You call that a life? That's not a life. This is a life. How many of y'all crocodile Dundee just got that one? Remember that one? 
You could say it good, couldn't you? I'll see right here. Jesus said, that's not a life. That's just living. And just living is not a life. Write that down. Jesus said, I want you to quit worrying about dying. I want you to quit worrying about living. I want to give you eternal life. Because up to that point, all they could think about is, how am I going to survive? How am I? And I would say right now, people sitting in this room under the sound of my voice, that's all you think about. How am I going to get by? How am I going to make it? How am I going to get this thing, to get, make this deal work out and get that person to move here? And if I could manipulate and finagle and claw and scratch, and, or if I could just stay safe, don't let anybody get near me. I, I'm not going to try. I'm not going to get any, any relationships. I, I'm not going to try anything new because I don't, I don't want to mess that thing up. And suddenly Jesus shows up on the scene and trashes the whole mindset. John 10 and 10, it's a, it's a scripture we use a lot around here. When you walked in with our brand new big sign, you saw the hills, and then it says three things. What does it say? We believe in loving passionately, giving generously, and living abundantly. We believe that if you can love God and others passionately, and you can learn to give generously, that you will step into abundant life. Because we believe that Jesus Christ did not come just to get you out of hell and into heaven. Jesus Christ came not that you could just have life, but that you could have life more abundantly. Now, if you're happy with just living, that's fine. Take it. That's great. That's what a lot of religion is, and that's what a lot of self-help is, and that's what just surviving is. But as for me, I want everything that Jesus Christ promised. I want to live abundantly in every area of my life. I don't know why we think that Jesus wants us to live abundantly spiritually, but not financially, and not in our marriage. I'm believing by the end of this session, and I'm so excited because Kristen has agreed to join me. We're going to do a a teaching on relationships and marriage. And some of you came today because you thought we were teaching together. I am so sorry she's not up here, but I'm glad we tricked you to being in church today. Over this next teaching thing, we're going to be sharing it. I am believing by the end of this session that some of you married folks are just going to be all over each other. That'd be good, wouldn't it, Gwen? Come on, tell them. Gwen knows. I'm believing that those who struggle in your finances are going to find ways to get that stuff right. I'm believing those of you that have struggled relationally and battled with depression, and you thought that, well, this area is what God wants to work on, but this area I'm just going to have to deal with. No, that is a lie from the enemy. He wants you living free and abundant and in favor in every area of your life. John chapter 10, you see Jesus' mission statement and Satan's mission statement listed listed side by side. Watch it. The thief does not come except to. But I have come that you may, the opposite of 
still, that you may have it more abundantly. The opposite of still, to kill and destroy. He said, I've come that you just don't have it, but that you have it more abundantly. The enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. He's not happy until he sifted you as wheat, and it just, he's just going to keep on messing with you and messing with you and crushing you and destroying you and beating you down. And God, all he wants to do is love on you and encourage you and build you up and build you up and build you. Eh, which one do I want? I don't know. I want to read it in three more translations. I've come that you may have life, that you may have it more abundantly. That's in the New King James Version. In the NIV, I have come that they may have it life and have it to the full. How many want full life? Not a good sound, just full life. When I hear, when I think of the word full life, I think of kids laughing, basketballs bouncing, uh, roasts and gravy and potatoes, mm. a little football in the background. How many know what I'm talking about? Is that a full life? Grandkids running around, retirement all taken care of. It's a full life, just happy full life. Jesus came that you can have a. The New Living Translation says this. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. That's what Jesus Christ came. Is to give you an abundant, full, rich, satisfying life. And then the message, which most of you all don't even think is should be considered the Bible. I'm going to read it anyway. I came... So they can have a real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. How many of y'all have big dreams for yourself? How many got big dreams for your kids? Take your highest dream, and Jesus takes it more extravagant and more eternal and more ambitious. He said, I've come to open up the doors to life that you never thought was possible. Why are we just surviving? Why? Why do we just get by? Anybody besides me guilty of that? I mean, as I was studying for this message, and this is the mission of our church, this is the vision of the hills. As I was studying for this, I was convicted. Because I began to look at areas in my life that I'm just getting by. I work hard on that one. But this one, for some reason, I just, I don't think that it'll ever be fruitful. Because that's my weakness. That's that one area. Those two areas are for me 12. That's those areas. I know I can do this one. I'm good at that one. I can crush that one on a daily basis. But those, I'm 46, still still can't quite get that one right. So I'm just, maybe I'll just let that one. No, every area of your life. But what about that? I'm so weak. In your weakness is where he's made strong. And in your sin is where his grace is made perfect. See, we're running from God because we don't think we're good enough. That's when you need to run to God because we're not good enough. 
Everybody say spoiler alert. I'm getting ready to tell you how I'm going to close every single message throughout this entire teaching theme. That's the way I'm going to close this one today. Every single message in this whole teaching theme, if it's six weeks, eight weeks, we're going to close it out this way. Matter of fact, I'm going to probably close every message for the rest of my life out this way. And it's by this. We need to change. I had a guy tell me not long ago, he said, man, I want to come to your church, but I don't want to feel like a project. I'm like, man, I don't know. You don't want to come to our church because we're all projects. (laughs) We're all projects. He loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Number one, as I'm closing today, and as I'm going to close out for the rest of my life, number one, we need to change. Number two, We cannot change. Can't do it. Paul said, when I want to do good, I mess it up. I know what to do, but I can't do it. How many know? I know. And that one thing that you always say, I'll never do it again. I'll never, ever do it again. And then you... I need to change. I cannot change without Jesus. I don't care who you are, how good you are, how great you are, how amazing you are. You will never change without the transforming power of Jesus Christ in your life. There's nothing more elementary and powerful as that statement right there. We must change We can't change without him. But with him, anything can change. That was it right there. Right there. That should have been the, for some of you at that moment right there. That was the moment. So let me try it again. No, you don't have to do that. I need to change. I can't change without Jesus. But with Jesus, anything can change. And say this with me, Jesus can change anything. We're going to be talking over the next several weeks. Jesus changes at the Midas touch. He changes everything he touches. Some people just don't let him touch them. He changes what he touches, but you got to want to be touched. Bartimaeus said, oh, Jesus, come here, I need you. Help me. And they all said, be quiet, blind man. No, I want him. I know if he touches me, something's going to change. That's the kind of people God's looking for. People are like, I want that. Or what about the lady with the issue of blood, the Bible says. She didn't wait for him to come to her. She went through everybody else. And she said, I know if I can but touch the bottom of his robe, I'm going to be healed. Everything Jesus touches changes. But you've got to want to change. I've got to be willing to change. Close your eyes, please. On our oversight board here at the Hills, one of the men that speaks into our life is Dr. David Remedios. Dr. Remedios is a renowned surgeon 
performed one of the first heart transplants. An amazing man. He's also a pastor. One day we were talking and he said, John, you can't believe the people that put up with all manner of pain. They just put up with stuff. And he said, I'll tell them. All it would take is let me do surgery. It'll be over. It'll be done. You won't suffer with that anymore. And he said, they put up. You cannot believe the stuff that people put up with. He said, until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. He said, and finally there's a day that they say, I cannot take this anymore. I am in agony. Please, doc, will you do something? I heard Dr. Remedios' words this morning as I was praying today. I'm looking at people in this room right now that you are putting up with stuff that you don't have to put up with. And I mean, you are trying to tough it out. I'm just going to make it. I'm going to make it. And Jesus does not want you just making it. He wants you stepping into new life, fresh life, whole life, full life. Everyone with your eyes closed.